Emerging Voices Fellowship is a literary mentorship that provides new writers the tools to launch a professional writing career. Emerging Voices is the most amazing program that allows the writers to develop. It's the opportunity to have my work in the world, to get to the truth of my writing, to know that what I'm writing matters. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I did something with a woman uh, who couldn't come to the AWP conference, and she, you know, we talked via Blue Jeans. Well, it's really nice to kind of see your face. It's a little dark in there, but that's cool. Is that intentional? Is that so you look no. mysterious? I'm just totally relaxed on my couch. <laughs> okay, <laughs> my okay. Phone. There she is. There's my girl. Thank you so much. Let's just get this out of the way. Welcome to the Emerging Voices podcast. This is episode 13. And today we are talking to 1999 EV, the wonderful award-winning poet and educator, Shonda Buchanan. hey yo. Hey, I'm so excited. We're so excited that you're here. Honestly, you know, this is like the COVID chronicles. I feel like if anything good comes out of this, it's that we're able to do more of these podcasts and feature more of the emerging voices in a meaningful way. COVID chronicles, I love that. So we're in what we're in lockdown. How many days have you been in your house? And tell us how it's going. Uh, so I have been in my house. Uh, lockdown, lockdown. Maybe what's today is Tuesday. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Five days. But I did go to the beach for the first day of spring that morning, Friday morning, um, because I had to, you know, make offerings and and just like pray for this world soul. <laughs> So then after that, I literally, I was like, I'm just going to stay in the house and just, and figure this out. But I went outside to take out the trash yesterday because no one was out. And I was like, okay, my first time walking out. And then the wind started up and I was like, fuck, you know, what if it's on the air? Right. <laughs> so because it can, you know, the, the thing can exist. Someone said three hours, but I looked it up last night and it says like a half an hour in the air. It can exist on metal and plastic. Right. Someone sits in a seat and cotton cloth. So if someone sits in a bus seat or an airplane seat and they had it and you sit in that seat, 30 minutes later, you can get it. And so I'm just like, wow, this is, uh, it's such an interesting, unprecedented in reality, but in like movie time and like in our imagination, like this is the kind of thing, this is an apocalyptic moment, you know, for, for us. And I pray, uh, I was reading something else last night. I'm trying not to read everything and scare, you know, the shit out of myself, but right. oh, can we, we can cuss on this. Right? We're going to cuss as much as we okay, want. Good. Yes. Okay, good. Yeah. So I was reading a thing last night and it said, was it the bubonic plague or the Spanish flu in 1918? It was bad in the fall. I'm sorry, it was bad in the spring and then the summer it let up and then it was bad in the fall. So I'm hoping that that's not our sitch. You know, I'm hoping it's not like we're all like, oh yeah, we're all finished, we're all done. And then, you know, July, August, September, come October and December, something else pops off. So, but I mean, this is the time to write. This is the time definitely to record what it, what it's like being an artist. You know, the way that we're making our living and creating our, our lives has to transform in order for us to maintain that creative space. Will you talk to us about, so you consider yourself tri-racial, tri-ethnic, African-American, American Indian, and of European descent. 
So talk to us about making offerings. You went to the beach. What does that mean for you? So for me, I guess in my, in the African and the uh, American Indian, the indigenous um, American culture, we celebrate seasonal changes. So we will do usually the night before the first um, day of spring, there are many, many ceremonies across the country uh, happening literally all night. So in sweat lodges, or there are deer dances or bear dances. Um, many people are, you know, just basically just kind of opening up uh, what we call, you know, that medicine of the spring. And so I went to the beach, I offered up some rice, I offered up some pennies and dimes, um, and some honey for Yemanya, which is an Orisha, uh, West African Orisha. Uh, she's the Orisha or the goddess of the ocean, very powerful goddess. And then also for her sister wives, Oya, and her daughter, Yemanya. And then uh, I also offered up the blueberries and the honey for that bear medicine, which is on the indigenous uh, American Indian side. And bears love blueberries and they're waking up. And so now we get to sing bear songs again. And I know it sounds interesting for some people who don't practice that and who have different ways, like the Eucharist, right? You know, people are like, you know, the blood and body of Christ, that kind of a thing. And so everyone's got their own way of acknowledging shifts in our, uh, I guess, calendar space, which is, you know, if you looked at any of the indigenous religions, the BC before Christ religions, everyone was always acknowledging like the shifts in seasons and then how those seasons impacted our psyche. So it's, so it's, that's what I did. (laughs) I love that. No, I'm so interested. Like, and I want to know, did you grow up with these kind of rituals or did you come to these rituals later in life? That's such a great question. I grew up with wives tales. Um, I grew up with a lot of magic is the wrong word, but otherworldly beliefs. Um, I grew up with superstitions. Yeah. Things like don't sweep your feet. And if you sweep someone's feet with a broom, that's bad luck. You're like giving them bad luck. Okay. You're trying to them out of your lives or, you know, sweep their good luck out. So you have to spit on the broom to, <laughs> I don't know if you ever heard that, but you like, spit on do the you broom spit on it work. before you sweep them or you spit on it after to like cancel you out the sweeping? Sweep your feet. Oh my God, this is hilarious. So if someone sweeps your feet, literally, and if they do it, and you're like, give me that broom. And so you have to spit on the broom to break the curse. That is hilarious. And I'm totally going to do that. <laughs> I'm so serious. The whole salt thing, like the, you know, that like if some of the salt, you know, spills, throw it over your shoulder to break the curse. Right. And then another thing too, like having a, like a little makeshift broom over your door, it let bad spirits know that you are prepared to repel them. And like they can, they are not allowed in your house. So just like so many things that I grew up with on, I guess it would be called like the pagan side, you know, right. but it reads indigenous culture. But I was raised in two things. So my dad was a Baptist preacher. I wasn't necessarily raised. I went to his church, but I was, I didn't live with his family. So I didn't like, I wasn't raised, raised in the church. I was in and around the church, adjacent Christianity. Okay. My mom at the time, and I and I talk about this in my book, Black Indian, my memoir that came out in August when I was good born, plug, good plug. We'll go back you know, to that. <laughs> but my mom, when I when I was born, for some reason, you know, by that time she was like, ah, f the church, f Christianity. I'm done. I don't have to do it. And she just decided, you know, that I let me back up. I don't even think it was a decision. 
It was just, I happened to be a child who was born at the time when she no longer went to church. Okay. But my sisters remember like them going to church all the time. It was like a, like a zeitgeist moment for me where I happened to be a child who didn't get forced in the indoctrination. And so I was kind of able to feel like nature and nature, you know, and, and like the wind and, and appreciate a, like spirituality and nature. And maybe that's a sensibility in my writing as well. Right. You know, that feeling that uh, all is one, uh, God, power, spirit, creator is in everything. And so I think even as a kid, like a kid, I was able to kind of feel, and I'm, and I'm scratching my hand too. People can't see this, but uh, it's interesting. This is another old wives tale. When you scratch your hand, it's like money's coming, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm scratching my hand that, aggressively. Scratch your hand. Everybody scratch your hand. Yeah. But as I'm talking, I'm always kind of connected to spirituality in a very, very different way than my brothers and sisters and then other African-Americans around me, which made it easier for me to, to, to move into and to adopt and learn traditions of American Indian cultures that I was not raised in. Okay. So, so let's make it a two part question. So I want to know like how you became a writer and also, you know, how this kind of transition into like recognizing this other part of who you were, where that came from. Yeah. I've been writing since I was nine. And I know, you know, people go back to that, like, very first moment. I, I literally consider myself a writer at nine, not a great writer. You know, I didn't really write good. I shouldn't say that. As a kid, you know, you know, for that time, 16, I wrote maybe one good poem. And then I wrote a lot of bad poetry up until, like, maybe 20, 24, 25, 26, right? So a lot of bad or, or just not craft, well-crafted poetry. So I've been writing for a long time. And I was actually published at 16 and 17. That's and it's funny because I just found some of my, um, the old newsletters that this one poet in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where I'm from, you know, basically had a, a newsletter. I guess that's what he called it. And he published Black Poets in Kalamazoo. And that was my only connection to another artist or a group of artists in Kalamazoo. But I always felt like it was so bereft. Like in, in Kalamazoo, I felt like we didn't have any poetry circles, communities. People didn't really, you know, they weren't thinking about writing in the way that I was thinking about writing. Um, when I came to Los Angeles in, gosh, 1987, October 17th, the day of a major earthquake. I think that was the day that the earthquake that ripped up Whittier Boulevard. Yeah, 1987. Did that feel uh, like, was that like an auspicious like start to you living in Los Angeles? Did you feel that? I did. Yeah. The spirits here were like, she's here. Right, right. The earth literally cracked open in welcome. Yes, it was like the spirits of California welcome you, daughter. I love it. Uh, so, so that's that one question about like how I became a writer, you know, how long have I been writing? And of course, there's much more to it. But how did I start practicing American Indian traditions? Orally, my mother always said that we were American Indian. We said in our families, we said Indian. So you're Indian, you're French, you're German, and you're a little bit of Black. Okay. That's how my mom said it. I grew up with that. Uh, my dad also said we were Choctaw. So I grew up with that. My mom didn't know our tribes. So I, you know, I traced our tribes and I talk about that in our book. But really the, the first sweat lodge that I actually went to was um, in the mountains of California. And my daughter was nine. She was born in 90. So nine or eight, so I think it was like 98 or 99 that we went up there. 
It was my first sweat lodge, and it was at a, in a community of um, triracials or you know people who practiced the traditions, but who weren't all full-blood American Indians. People who looked like me, who had their oral history, who had their tradition, you know, in their mouths and you know stories from, of their people. And so I said, okay, yeah, I'm home. Like. I'm here and I'm learning songs and, you know, I get to say, you know, that I've got this ancestry and no one looks at me funny and no one looks at me weird because we've all gravitated towards it. And I was always conscious of and trying to be careful of not being a culture vulture, you know, yeah, someone who raised in the tradition of the, you know, American Indians and like glomming onto their culture as if, oh, this is so spiritual, you know, to me. And so when I kept, I kept thinking about that, I was like, you know, you need to find your tribes. Like you need to be able to like tell people like who your aunt, like who are the folks who wrote Indian on their census records or whatever. And so about, I started writing Black Indian when my daughter was five or six, but it wasn't called Black Indian then. Okay. It was called willow women so i was telling the story of my mom and my sisters so that's like Um, that's actually just before so you did your sweat lodge your first sweat lodge right at the same time that you were an emerging voice so how did those two things were you also was that the work that you were um working on in emerging voices black indian the original version i was working on my novel actually so in i submitted my novel to um to emerging voices and i finished that novel but my mentor oh i can even remember my mentor's name but my mentor was reading excerpts of my novel I workshopped my novel in my grad program at um, LMU so that's what I was working on I didn't take my memoir to any of that I was basically working on my memoir myself okay and I'm, and, cli- and I'm clicking right now because I'm going to look up to see who your mentor was I try not to do this when you're talking because when in the recording, I can hear the clickety clack of my clicking. <laughs> all right, let's see. I'm Okay, I'm, I apologize to all the listeners. Uh, I'll, this is the only time I'll do it. Linda Phillips Ashore? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's her, girl. I wonder what, she, what she's doing. Probably try to reach out to her. Hey, Linda, if you're listening, email hey. me. <laughs> so that's what I did. I was like, okay. How about you find your people? So after grad school, I graduated in 2003. I was working at LMU and I applied to uh, Hampton University and I was accepted in 2004. So I was like, oh, that's, that was easy. And so it was, it was weird. It was like, you're supposed to come here. When I got to Virginia, it was so slow it was not LA people were looking at me like trick why are you honking your horn in the jack-in-the-box oh my I god line, you know? <laughs> because you you guys are going ass slow like hurry up you're not in a horse buggy wagon come on oh my okay <laughs> I had to girl I had to adjust but the thing that happened was uh, I was I didn't have a community I was looking for things to do for my daughter and me and I went to this uh, library and I saw this flyer and it said what was it it was the Wyandotte Association W E Y O N Noki K E Association and it said come celebrate your Black Indian roots and I was like what that's me right and, right uh, 2004 so I don't know. My daughter was 15. I was like 30-ish, somewhere around there. God, time is flown. But I went to this event and suddenly it was like all these people, folks making their own like jewelry and galia. And that community 
became my next community, you know, from the California community where I was doing a lot of ceremony, a lot of sweat lodge, and then moving to Virginia and suddenly happening upon all these other people who were indigenous to that area or whose people were either um, not away. The one of the women who was the co-founder of this organization, her People were Shoshone, but she also had a Jewish great-grandmother. Um, one guy was Blackfoot, uh, the Cherenhakanataway. Uh, I started singing on one of the American Indian drums. So it's like I just kind of sn like snowballed and rolled into the culture. And so no longer, no longer was I feeling like, like uh, you weren't raised in these traditions. How can you practice them? It's like, oh, no, you are being respectful. You are asking people, like, I have these, these skill sets or I have these dreams or I have these, like, the, my ancestors are calling me. And other people are understanding what you're saying. Um, that we're speaking the same language. Right. The same things were happening to those people in those circles. So just fell into this group of just like funny and hilarious and caustic, <laughs> just like people who could cook. And actually that's my second memoir. Plug. So my second memoir is going to pick up, it's, you know, a little bit of where the fun ended, but I'm also going to talk about, it'll be spirituality and relationships and travel. So it's kind of my black woman's eat, pray, love. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so excited for that. You know, one of the EVs, M, she's really kind of struggling with originally thinking it was like a travel memoir. It was like black woman coming of age across the, the continent or across the globe and she's having a really hard time figuring out like what is the story and like people telling her it's too sad and and so like the more the more memoir I get to read from women of color the more excited that I am I'm wondering you know with black Indian you talk a lot about community and family and why is this search for community and family and being in the center of the sense of belonging so important to you, do you think? I think it's important to me to talk about community because as a, I mean, as COVID-19 is showing us, we need each other. Right. We need people. We need companionship. We need each other's stories to, to, to show us that ours are validated. And just when you, you're talking about uh, M, and I don't know M, I would love for you to say to her that she should write her truth no matter how sad it is. Right. I had an agent tell me that my memoir was a dark memoir. And I was like, it's not a dark memoir. What do you, what do you mean by that? It, this is like resilience and triumph and you know, this is like women surviving like <laughs> abuse and addiction. I knew what she meant, but people who haven't been in that space of a volatile childhood or, you know, just like a kid who like you knew your favorite hiding places when the violence happened or when, they, when the drinking started or when the fighting started. People who didn't grow up in those kinds of communities will all, well, I shouldn't say always, but will most of the time think that our lives are sad. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Sad. I want to tell her to just write that shit, you know, just keep writing it and don't, don't worry about someone telling you that it's so sad because she will find the triumph in it. You yeah. know, her, her job as the writer is to make us feel that story in the way that she felt it. Right. And the, to direct us. In the, in the direction, you know, what, whatever she wants us to learn or to take, you know, as the writer. Right. Uh, I knew for me, 
um, my job as the writer was definitely to show where I came from. Um, it was definitely to tell the stories of my women because the stories of my women became, I became those stories. And then I also kind of gave birth to myself, like breaking out of the, the traditions of the legacy of addiction and abuse, which is something, you know, that you write, you're writing about yeah. too, right? Yeah, buddy. Um, and I'm curious to know, you know, how you're dealing with, you know, with some of that as well, because I haven't read a lot of um, your memoir. I know you were asking me about community, but so so I kind of moved into, you know. Well, well let's people. let's talk about community because like you and Rhonda, who are Rhonda Mitchell, Fellowship, Fellowship Sisters, 1999ers. I want to know, like, you guys are tight, still tight, and it's like 20 years later. And do you think that is because of this sense of community? And, like, tell me how that happened. How did that relationship evolve? So it's interesting. Um, I was recommended to EV by someone at the world stage. I can't remember who it was. And then after I became an EV, I was recommending like people like Rhonda and Kim Benjamin and was Ste- no Stephanie Hahn was in my group. Stephanie is my girl. Oh, dude, I have to tell you, I talked to Stephanie on Saturday and she was so awesome. And she's like, loves you and Renee and Rhonda. <laughs> she's amazing. Yeah. She's so dumb. And she's brilliant. Dr. Han now. She's Dr. Han. She is Dr. Han. Dude. Um, but yeah, so so at the world stage people, we continually were recommending people, you know, from our community because, you know, we knew that our voices uh, kind of weren't being heard in the Los Angeles landscape, you know, so we were always trying to put people on. So Rhonda and I, and many of the people who are my like incredible colleagues and friends met at the world stage, Anansi Writers Workshop. Great. Uh, Which is still uh, running today. Still thriving. Yeah. Um, nearly 30 years old. I think we're going to celebrate a 30-year anniversary this summer. Yeah, this summer. So uh, Kamal Daoud and Billy Higgins founded the world stage, uh, opened the world stage in Lamarck Park in Los Angeles because they didn't um, see a space where writers of color were accepted and musicians of color were, you know, had a place to create. So, so several things happened. I started going to the world stage, I think in 91. It was so weird because the first time I went, the world stage was haphazard. Like you could see the elbows sticking out, um, <laughs> like pews and benches rather, not even pews, but benches. And like people had like brought chairs from the sidewalk in. It was like such a really interesting space, but you had uh, Adwin Brown and Anthony Lyons, Nafis, Wanda Coleman, of course, frequented right. stage, Akila, B. Kali. Uh, so, so there were so many like real people who were Africanists, but, and they were also healers and they were also writing at the same time. So that's that like generation. And then you have the rest of us kind of sliding in then you have like the Berkeley Black Pack, like people who June Jordan had trained in her Poetry for the People, like classes up in, in Berkeley. And so they kind of came in and brought their energy and their educated poetry. And Dee Knowledge was another poet. And so, so we, it became a convergent of energy and, and we knew it. We were in a renaissance. We, we knew it. It was such a visceral, like and we were writing poems about each other and for each other and for this world and, and for each other's children. 
Uh, my daughter is a world stage baby. There are so many people who met, married, sometimes divorced, but they had kids. You know, those kids were like their poems, you know, that came from that workshop. Yeah. So that's where I recognize that one of the places where I recognize that it is important to, as an artist, to the best of your ability to find people who reflect you back. Yeah. Who reflect your aesthetic, but at the same time will will allow you to bring in something else or will allow you um, to to move between communities uh, and who won't ostracize you for coming from a different place. Right. So so that was the really beautiful thing about the world stage that we could come together and then we could separate and go to our own corners and, you know, of, of L.A. and then come back again on Wednesday nights, which is when the world stage happened. And then we go back out again, like ambassadors into the world. So I took that spirit into EV. You know, I took the spirit of community is important. Um, Talking with writers and talking about craft and, and, and talking about plot and technique. Like these are the things that we need from each other. And because I had been in the world stage, I think that I was like super, um, I think it was too hard sometimes in terms of like the importance of language. <laughs> I was like, I think I was too, just like not fanatical, but just very uh, an elitist. Yes, that is my word. I was an elitist. I've gotten better. <laughs> well, I, I don't see that in you at all, especially personally. You know, your work is obviously elevated, but like to to be in a, in a personal situation with you, you're just the best, like the energy, the light that comes off you. And I just wonder, how do you think Emerging Voices built off what you were getting from uh, the world stage? Like, how did the two things complement each other? Did they? That's a great question as well. The energies fed off of each other because we knew, we knew that Penn, at least from our understanding in LA was kind of a grassroots organization at the time. Right. So almost like there was this, this official organization for writers that were advocates for writers and the world stage was a, the world stage was a safe space for us, for writers. Um, We knew that we could network among ourselves and that we each other, but there was a different kind of networking happening on a city level okay. at Penn. Yeah. And we wanted that access. Like we wanted access to Penn teaching in the schools. And, you know, we wanted to know how to do things that we didn't know how to, we didn't know how to, um, to teach workshops at the time, you know? And so being in some of the workshops at UCLA's writer extension programs, which is something that I got um, with Evie and having a mentor and, and then also just having that community, uh, our group, you know, our cohort of people, it became a different level for us. And it was like, oh, this is how other writers have navigated the terrain, you know, that literary terrain in LA. Did you take what you learned in EV and did you bring it back to the world stage? And were you able to help writers there? I was able to help writers at um, the world stage from some of the elements that I that I learned, I pulled, like after my EV phase, I was an ambassador. So I was saying, hey, everybody, Emerging Voices is this and this and that. And if you need this and this and that, you should apply. Like these are the kinds of things that you, that you, that we need. 
um, that we don't know. So I was very much an advocate. I'm still an advocate. <laughs> when Natalie was at um, LA Times Book Fair and she was in the booth by herself, was kind of hanging out. I was like, sis, okay, I'm volunteering an hour here. So I was like, hey, you know, to people. Yeah. Who are, I was about pen. You know about the emerging voices. You know what we do. You know about freedom to write. You know, so I was like basically pulling folks in. They were like, "Oh, I think I'm going to join." And blah, blah, blah. I was like, I'm, yeah. I'm, this is awesome because this is a perfect segue for a question that I have. So there are 156 emerging voices. I have like a pretty solid relationship with probably like say 20, 25 of them that I talk to on a pretty regular basis. But like, where's everybody else? Like, why do you think in your opinion and and like, you're not going to hurt my feelings and don't feel you have to censor yourself. (coughs) Why do you think that people fall away? I honestly, I think maybe it's not. Of them felt like they were able to utilize the tools that were provided, publish, and then once they had published, maybe they had reached a different level. Right. And so they no longer needed this this group, this cohort. So so that's one. Yeah. Other people are no longer writing. Right. So they're just it was a phase in their lives. Yeah. Able to participate in that this wonderful phase and now they're either raising kids or selling houses or you know they're not yeah right and so so yeah so I guess those are maybe two areas where people they just don't feel like they needed to they needed to stay connected or rather did not feel like they needed to stay connected to this community but what I have learned is so from EV because of EV, I hopped into a Sundance um, Institute writing arts program. Okay. I think that was something that this lovely, lovely man, Jason Schinder, saw in me. I didn't even think I was going to get this, um, you know, get it. But Jason Schinder chose me and five other people to be writing arts fellow for Sundance. And it was because I think Say it again. No, I didn't say anything. I want to know what that means. What did you oh, do? Yeah. It's, it's, I don't think the program happens anymore, but basically because I was freelancing for the LA Weekly, because I was in EV, I was freelancing for the LA Times. Um, I'm sorry, not the LA Times, LA Village View at the time. And so writers who are writing about culture, arts, entertainment, they would take, they took us to Sundance for summer and we got, we got to participate in a whole nother level of community, like of, of writers who were, who were artists and who were writing about the arts as That's well. That's amazing. Yeah, it was amazing because I got to meet like Robert Redford and I got to meet J- George Plimpton. And I realized that my ability to participate in this, in the culture to contribute to my writing communities and then to tell other people like, hey, you guys, this is how we can create fabric. You know, this is how we can strengthen our writing community to really change and transform the world. Like, that's what I believe language does. But the other people who this, you know, who kind of fell off of EV, maybe they don't have that same belief in language. You know, they don't have that same, what I call commitment, you know, and I've always had that commitment to language and the power of language. And that I will never not have, you know, that sense that my life is a thing that I wrote into existence. And, you know, with like constant prayer, (laughs) with constant, you know, consideration of, um, 
what I wanted my life to look like. Do you feel like you're a performer? You are a singer? Do you write songs? Do you play instruments? Like, I wonder how much of your life is a performance. Do you always feel like to some extent that you're on stage? No, I don't. I don't always feel like I'm on stage. Uh, I do so many private ceremonies. I am at once a social butterfly and a hermit. Okay. <laughs> do you think you need that time to like recharge? I know that I have to put myself in spaces of solitude and quiet in order to rejuvenate, to reconnect, to reaffirm. I think it's all, how can I say, the singing is prayer for me and it, it just feels good. The writing is prayer for me. Being able to help people with language is a kind of prayer for me. Being someone who dances, I'm a, a tr women's traditional, you know, powwow dancer. Like that's the it's definitely like a way of connecting back to my ancestors and it's a prayer for me. So I don't always feel like a performer. And, I, and actually, um, someone asked me to do something, a museum asked me to do an hour long program and they want to call it a musical performance. And my ear is just like, eh, no, it's not a performance. You know, this is a gift. And so I have to figure out like how to ch change that language. But I think it is just art. It is being creative. Yeah. I think it's creativity. And uh, I think that it is, when I when I know that I am doing a, like a spoken word performance, I know this is what someone recognizes, recognizes it as. Like, oh, it was, she did such a great performance. Your performance was great. But that is such a Shakespearean language to me. For us, it's thank you for sharing. Right. Thank you for holding space. Holding space. I, I like that. Yeah. The language is very particular, even in the way that you're like describing what this thing is. We're like, that's not the right word. Please don't use that. Yeah, I get it. So tell me how long, like, so you came out of EV, it's 1999. Tell me the process of your first, when did you, when did you publish your first book? Like, what did that look like? Give us the, the tour of Shonda's writing career. So in 1994, I received a grant from the California Community Foundation. And it was $1,500, like a piddly, you know, little grant. But I was like, I'm a single mother. Right. I've got the daughter. And it was such a, like a, like it was big money at the time, you know, for me. And one of the missives was to publish a chapbook. Okay. So that was my first chapbook in 1994. And then but, but how did you publish a chapbook? What did, did you print it out at Kinko's and put like staples in it? What happened? <laughs> you did? Oh my God, it's amazing. It was called Strange Fruit, A Nickel, A Moon. And I actually have copies on my bookshelf. It's so crazy with all these like ethereal poems and poems of, you know, the woman who I was at the time. So yeah, I did. I had like, a, I went and got one of those hardcover Kinko's, you know, basically was like, I want this, this type of paper. For oh, the, the cardstock, the cardstock. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Regular paper. And then um, they stapled it, you know, yeah. so it didn't have a binding or anything. Cause I was young. I didn't know, you know what I mean? I didn't know what it was supposed to look like. It was like, you have to produce this book. I didn't have any, like anyone to say you should do X, Y, and Z. My boyfriend at the time did the cover and it was a lovely, lovely cover. So that was my first chat book. And I guess that was my first technic published writing. How, I don't even know how old I was. So my dad was four. That means that I, 1994. Yeah. So that means I was 25. Amazing. 25. 
And then after that, I did a couple of other chat books. And then in Virginia, I met a, a woman. I was on the board for the Poetry Society of Virginia. And I met a woman who said, hey, you know, I will help you publish your book. Like I have a publishing company. She said, it's not print on demand. But she, so she explained it in like this language, but it was actually print on demand, you know? Okay. So my, my first real collection, I'd say, of poetry was published in 2012. And that book was called Who's Afraid of Black Indians? And then after I, when I published, I was like, why didn't I have better quality, you know, in terms of my, uh, my other chat books, you know, why didn't I figure that out? But anyway, here, here I am. So that was 2012 in 2006. Uh, I did the anthology, uh, Voices from the Mert Park. Okay. And that was a labor of love that took four years to pull together and compile. So I'm the editor for that anthology of Los Angeles poets, Black and Latina, Latino poets. And then in 2017, I had another collection of poetry come out, Equipoise, Poems from Goddess Country, which is, a, I really love that book, but I'll, I'll come back to that. And then I had my, the second anthology, the World Stage Anthology come out in 2012 as well. So I had two books come out in 2012, hot damn. Amazing. I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, 2017. Hi, and then this memoir came out in 2019. And uh, yeah, and so now I'm working on, I need to revise my collection of Nina Simone poems. And then also I'm working on like several, like, you know, the second memoir right. and, and a screenplay and a couple of other projects. So I've got a lot of irons in the fire. <laughs> So you said like you didn't like that first chat book, like, why did I do it this way? Like, do you have advice for poets starting out now? Yeah. So poets who want to publish a chat book, I would definitely say find your, your top 10 favorite chat books, you know, like poets, you know, top 10 or top 20, in fact, and pull them together and look at their cover, you know, look at the work look at the arc of the work themes, you know, so, you know, what is it that you feel you have to impart on the world? You know, how can you say something differently? And then also I would, I would say check small chat book, you know, contests, you know, chat book contests, like submit to those. You never know. You could win. Possibly you could have someone publish 300 copies of your book and you won't have to foot your own money. And then also that 300 copy piece is real unless you are a writer who is going to take your book and travel and <laughs> and sell your book, you know, consistently, then that is 300 copies is enough. Three to 500 is enough. 300 is enough unless you're going to get yourself out there. Right. Do you, did you have a time where you were like driving around with like your book in the trunk and you would be like, I'm a poet and bring people to the trunk? Like, how did you sell those? I didn't do it. I, I sold them at, at readings. So I had a couple of like little small readings. That's the other thing, Amanda. Yo, we need to do a workshop on this. Okay. Because I didn't know. Like, and, and afterwards, I realized, oh my God, people are actually doing this. I didn't know that once you publish a book, that you were supposed to tour the hell out of that book. Like you were supposed to book readings and at libraries and conferences and you were supposed to promote your book. And I was like, I thought New York would promote my book. Like I thought the press would publish my book. I didn't know that a lot of that footwork is you showing up and selling 20 copies and then those 20 people telling other people about your book or I didn't know that. So like, so though that is a conversation that needs to be had in, on the ED level. That once you publish a book, it is not Nirvana, and and Raina would be really good for that too because she tours a lot. Raina Grande, yeah, 
be really great to kind of maybe even do some Q and A's with. And then some other EV people, but like, what are the things that we didn't know that our, our group that writers should know? And that's definitely one of them. You have to put that work in. How do you think, like, what, how was the experience different with the memoir or was it, or what did you do differently? With the memoir, I knew, like, I, I knew that it was my responsibility. My press was a small press and they're freaking fantastic. I love Annie Miller, um, Wayne State University Press. Uh, all the people there, Christina, Kristen, Emily, uh, Jamie, just like a fantastic team of people. And, but they're in their team, but they're a small team. So I knew that my ability was get your butt to a location. And at that location, your job is to give a reading and sell those books. And once you book a reading, you tell them, and then they will either connect with the bookseller or make sure your books are there, or you have to buy your own books. So I was like, I'm not buying books. Like I, that is, I can't put that expense. I did it once actually, only once this entire, what, October, November, December, just eight months, I think I'm still eight months back. Um, so I did it once, but it was like, if people want this book, then they're going to order it from my press. So my press can see I'm working right. and I'm hustling <laughs> and, and they will create those orders and get the book to them. And then whatever residual monies come to me, they come because I hustled my ass off. Right. So how, how are you being affected right now with the COVID-19 shutdowns? So I had um, several, God, one, two, three, four, five events canceled. Three of those events are moving to the fall that I know of now. In terms of books, so my, and, and in fact, this is a to-do for this week. I need to reach out to one guy at a university who said he wanted to order 150 copies of my book for his students. And then uh, another professor at a university was teaching my book to 70 students. So I have to reach out to him and say, hey, are they still purchasing? Da, 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 da. So that's 150, 70, what is that? 200 and something books that you know, you know, know, could potentially be sold. But if they're like, oh, we're going to wait until the fall, then that's okay because my books are like, so I'm going into a second printing and I'm waiting to announce this until, you know, I, I, my, until my editor says, go ahead and, you know, do an announcement and then connect it to some event, <laughs> you know? Oh, okay. So everybody just earmuffs on this part then. So basically, so it's like, yes, and you can show up here to buy her book or, you know, books are still online. And so they can get an ebook. In, in terms of the mailing, you know, they can still get the, they can still get a hard copy of the book. I haven't talked to to my people to see, hey, have, have orders stopped or have orders petered off or, um, you know, what I haven't asked them yet. So I don't know in that respect. So there's a lot of your, like there, the business side of being a writer is pretty intense. Like you're, it's just like being any other business, being in business for yourself. What has your was, experience been with agents? Yeah, no, it's interesting. So I submitted my novel to two agents last year, and it was the only the sec third time I think I have been holding on to that novel. I just I didn't submit it, and they said the they love the writing, but my plot had issues. Okay. So those are two that I will go back to, 
And then there are a couple of other agents that I want to um, submit the novel to. So I do not have an agent. I'm doing this all on my own. I did have a friend writer who said he would recommend another agent for me. And but I'm just not pushing it. It's just like so I have a really a, a good friend in D.C., super connected. And he's like, why would agent to do what you can do and keep your 15%, like keep your 15, 20%. You know, so he said, like, he said, why do you need an agent when you can do it yourself? Okay. And a publicist, you know, he said that I hired an outside publicist. Um, and I still, I have another publicist too, Nanda, who, uh, Corellius agency, I'm sorry, Corellius company. And Nanda is amazing. Like she, her insight at this time is such a, a fantastic thing that I need. So, but my friend in DC says, you can basically set a schedule up for yourself and you can do everything that an agent would do. You can do everything that a publicist would do. Keep your $5,000, like keep that money in house. So I know for me right now where I am is I'm not prepared because I want that novel to be like spit shine. I want some, you know, people to say, this is like the next Toni Morrison's, you know, whatever. So that's just me. But now that I'm at Wayne State, I can always say, hey, hey, Annie, would you be interested in this? And how can I fix it? You know, how can I help? I mean, so I've got my connection to her and she knows that I have a couple of other projects that I want to send out. And depending on that response, I will go to her as well. Okay. I think that's great. I feel like, you know, I'm at the stage where I'm querying agents. And I say that with air quotes because that's where I'm supposed to be. And it has been really difficult to transition into this other aspect of asking people to like you. Like, I don't know, like it, it feels like a very weird uh, blind date where mm-hmm. where all the power is on one side. And I know it shouldn't feel that way. I talked to Dan Smetanka and he was like, I think that you have to remember that while the agent may have a little bit more power at the, this beginning stage, it's like you're the creative. So you also have power. Like you have to believe in your own power, which can be really hard as a writer. Exactly. Yeah. No, no. And I would say too, we all want the big contracts, right? Yeah. But, but small presses are, they've, they've got some committed people, dedicated people. Right. And I have talked to, and I've been at panels where people talk about, they compare the small press with the major press. And they're like, the small press is so much um, more conscientious of how they talk to you and treat you. And um, the big press, you can get lost in a big press if you are a, a small writer and you don't, you know, um, heavy. What is his name? Kaisi? Kaisi Lehman. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, and if you, you're not on, on that level or Tanahasi uh, or uh, a C, you know, one of the C, you know, Lisa C. Or, so if you're not on the level where people are are promoting you and constantly pushing your name out there and out there and out there, you can get lost, you right. know, at a, at a large press. And it becomes this question of like, how important is it to you? Like, do you want to be published? How important is it that your work gets out there? Like, does it really matter? Like, is it really about the craft or is it about this dream of, of, of success that like, doesn't even really exist anymore in the current, you know, climate? Yeah. yeah, no, it doesn't exist anymore. Maybe, you know, sometimes there's some cyclical things that happen, you know, there are a lot of writers writing and then suddenly you've got people rising to the top. But those people are supported by other writers who are already at the top. Right. No, that's totally <laughs> true. Like, 
And they're like, you should look out for this person, or you should like, you know, put this, pull this person onto, um, onto your, your panel, you know, discussion. The other thing too, that I was told, and my, uh, my publicist said this too, <clears throat> she said, you, we, the writers who are writing memoir, should try to publish their uh, excerpts in essays because then you start the cultural conversation. Right. Like, you know, Sun and um, other places. And, you know, so then you're starting the, that's what um, uh, author Heavy did and uh, Coates did, right? Coates wrote for The Atlantic and right. um, pieces, um, I think, in The New Yorker. So he was starting that cultural conversation and then that became his book. Well, I will say that I have seen that in practice with Natalie Lima, who was an EV in 2016, is like her essays are getting so much attention that she was, you know, she's been nominated, I think, last year for two or three push carts. You know, they're teaching a couple of her essays in classes and she's in a few anthologies or was, I think, got honorable mention in best essays for last year. And she is, agents are approaching her. So I see that happen in real time. I don't know her work. Uh, I'll send them to you actually, actually after we get off this, after we get off our call. But I want, so we need to wrap up because I've kept you long enough, but please tell me, what do you want to talk about? What do you wish that we had said that we didn't say? We talked about a lot. I'm good. You good? <laughs> really, honestly, I think I would love to know, you know, for me, because I'm always saying, I, I'm always saying, I want to give back to Evie. Like I want to be an Evie um, mentor. I want to be eventually on the board. <laughs> now that I let go of one board, I want to be on the board for Penn. So I think for, for the Evie people who want to give back to Penn, like how can we do that? You know, like Penn in the schools or, and I think that that would make some of us, even reaching out, that would make some of us feel like we're still connected. We're still needed. Um, we're still a part of that com community. I love going to the gala affair Oh my gosh. And thank you guys. Thank you so very much, Amanda, for making all of that happen. You yeah. are freaking fantastic. It was great. It was like, I'm going to give it up for Tracy, who's our development person in, in LA, because she was the one that like we had extra tables donated back and she really fought hard for our EV community to take those seats. Yeah, it was really exciting. Fantastic. But I mean, of those people in those groups, it's like if we lay our books out, we're like creating this whole different like culture. You know what I mean? It's like, um, Chris Terry and um, Douglas. Is Douglas an EV? F. Douglas Brown? No, F. Doug teaches the masterclass and has for years. And then Doug Manuel was, um, I put them all at the same table because they're all buddies, but um, Douglas Manuel was a mentor and he had to come in and did uh, F. Doug needed a couple days off. So he taught the masterclass. So that's, it is this like really cool thing where I think of that hair commercial where it was like, and then she told two friends and she told two friends. It's like that. And it's like, we have the, like our fingers stretched out. So it yeah. was so great to see everybody in the same room. I know we need an EV library. Like that's what we need. Like all of our books and like. We, we have EV. one. It's at the office. You just need to come oh. in and see it. <laughs> see it. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. You're hilarious. Do you have anything coming up that we should look out for that we can promote other than please go buy your copy of Black Indian? I think we can go to your website and purchase it, correct? Uh, they, my website directs you back to Amazon and it'll direct you back to Wayne State University Press. Okay. In terms of uh, upcoming, I think for me, it's basically if you have, bring me to speak at your schools, you know, bring me to speak at your colleges, bring me to speak at, I do everything from 
my gosh, uh, kindergarten all the way up to senior citizen. So like my work, um, what I do is for all of us. What are you teaching? It's, Creative it's, writing? Composition? No, I teach everything. Yeah. I teach poetry, fiction, narrative, nonfiction, American lit, African-American lit, master creative writing courses. Honestly, like, I feel like there could be a cool thing that comes out of this where it opens up the borders for people bringing you into class. And, and you're, you know, if that's the only option, it's not like they would prefer to have someone in person. Like now they can have Shonda via Zoom in Kalamazoo, for instance. Yep. Yeah, basically, virtually. It's like, bring me in. Yes. And then you can order my online book. And then if we're going to do all this online, then we can do that. And then to allow allow me, hopefully, to, to kind of be an artist who impacts younger people or who impacts budding writers or who impacts seniors who are writing poems. Anyone who, um, who wants someone like me, someone who believes, who's committed to the power of language to come into your classrooms like that's that's what I would love to do so anyone who's committed to the power of language from kindergarten to senior citizen please bring Shonda Buchanan into your classroom to teach poetry creative nonfiction, fiction whatever you got Shonda can fix it and I would say go to her website, which we're going to link to in the description of this podcast and all the info will be there. Am I right, Ma? Yes, you are right. Everything will be there and it's being revamped too. So it'll be a whole new website, a whole new website that just cut out. Okay. Thank you so much. So lovely to see your amazing face. Can't wait to see it in person. Can't wait to see you too. Hugs, hugs. Virtual hug. Love you, Ma. Bye. Bye. America champions the freedom to write and believes that freedom of expression and literature are inseparable. Visit pen.org to learn more about what we do. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Join us. Be a part of the larger conversation. Support for EV comes from sources both big and small. Serious financial support comes from organizations like the Amazon Literary Partnership, California Arts Council, New Balloon and Catapult, Los Angeles County Arts Commission, the Ovation Foundation, Pasadena Literary Alliance, the Rosenthal Family Foundation, and UCLA Extension Writers Program. And let's not forget individuals like Jamie and David Wolf. We appreciate you. To the Emerging Voices themselves, this podcast is in support of everything you do and everything you've accomplished. Congratulations. We celebrate you. Thanks to 2012 EV Johnny Alfie for giving us our theme song, Linen, from his band, Tony and Johnny. And to the members of the Los Angeles literary community who have been showing up for us for more than 20 years, donating their time as mentors, committee members, author evening hosts, and masterclass instructors, I have leaned on each and every one of you for advice, and I appreciate you. You've been there to answer my questions, those of the fellows, as well as the questions of prospective applicants. You've written letters of recommendation, introductions, outreach essays, and blog posts. You've encouraged EVs to read at your events and said yes when we've asked you to read at ours. And to Dave Thomas, everything we know about public speaking, we learned from you. This is all just to say, thanks LA, sincerely. <laughs>